always think that our colleagues thought they were doing the best 25 years ago, but we look at what they have done, we kind of roll our eyes, right? If we thought that uh, it was today. So I always imagine myself uh, looking at myself 20 years from now. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. The episode I just recorded went a little bit differently than I thought it was going to go. I thought it was going to be about pursuing a career track in academic medicine, and it's a bit of that, but it talked more about what it means to have a meaningful and well-balanced career. My guest for today was Dr. Kutluk Oktai. He's at Yale. He's a professor of OBGYN and reproductive sciences there. He's the director of the Laboratory of Fertility Preservation and Molecular Reproduction there. He has published over 200 manuscripts and book chapters. His research has been funded by the NIH for almost 20 years. And we talk about what it means to have a meaningful career for someone. Not that there's one path for anyone, but giving the listener an idea of what it's like to balance this and, and how you incorporate different interests, not just in the work part, but all of the things that happen when you're not working, you know, like your family, your health, your fitness, your hobbies, if you have those. And that's what this episode explores in a way that's a bit more meaningful than just talking about self-care as a platitude, which I can't stand. And we we'll talk a little bit about that in the conversation, but I'll let you decide. So I hope you enjoy. Dr. Oktai Kutluk, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm interested in the topic that you and I were snowballing, the, the idea that you had about the ability to have it all as an REI practitioner and specifically with regard to working in an academic setting. And so before we go into how one is able to have it all, I, I believe that the, the topic you had phrased as was having your cake and eating it too. So let's start before we talk about how to eat the cake. Tell us what the cake looks like. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a cake in this instance, but well, cake is, I think, hobby. The, the first uh, trick is that, uh, you know, you need to love what you're doing. And uh, if you're doing what you're doing as a job, you know, it's not a cake, right? So it's a cake because it tastes good and uh, you enjoy it. But even having too much of your favorite food would not be good for you and eventually get sick and tired of it. So I think to me, cake is what you love doing. And, uh, and the cake is one that's made with balanced ingredients and not one flavor is uh, overpowering the others. And uh, <clears throat> a healthy cake, healthy cake. So you have to bake your own cake. You have to come up with your own recipe. If you have the wrong recipe, for your cake, you know, you may so, soon throw up everything you had eaten, so to speak. Talked about a balance of ingredients. What do some of those ingredients look like? 
well, you know, a little bit of flour and I'm just kidding. That's a different show. That's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, right. that's inside Sorry, reproductive I, cooking. We're, we're building know, out all got mixed up, you know, during the time of COVID, we're all dis- <laughs> disoriented and the wrong show. Okay. Because I do some cooking and that's part of the ingredients, right? You need to balance your life as much as your work life. And we cannot be a single channel or single ingredient cake. You know, if you just made it with flour, no sugar, who's going to eat that cake? Number one is to have variety of ingredients and not to build on one ingredient. Uh, So maybe if you want to, you know, start diverging from the cooking analogy, right? In my case, I'm curious, right? Because I'm both a scientist and clinician and I always question. I always question and say, there must be a better way of doing this. And I always think that our colleagues thought they were doing the best 25 years ago, but we look at what they have done, we kind of roll our eyes, right? If we thought that uh, it was today. So I always imagine myself uh, looking at myself 20 years from now. And first of all, try to always improve things. And uh, <clears throat> so that kind of makes it fun because to me, nothing is routine. Everything is a challenge. The challenge to do better, do better for your patients and do better for the field, never stagnate. And uh, so the ingredients for that reason is, of course, it's a good patient care, but innovation and always asking you know, what can I do? What question can I ask? And how do I study that to take this current approach to the next level? When you talk about a balance in work life, do you mean balancing mm-hmm. life within work with life outside of work, you know, family and hobby balance? Or do you mean balancing what you do within work? Right, right. So in your life, you have different index funds. One is the work index fund that you want to you know track the optimum rate of increase in your quality with balancing components of your work and then you have your family life and you have your hobbies and then you have you know another balancing there and then together you balance all these together so you have the balancing the compartments but then you are so the life balance so when i say work life not work life but your life at work, I'm talking about, I personally, if I just saw patients seven days a week, I would probably uh, uh, burn out in two weeks. And because that's not how my brain functions, right? Uh, And as I said that, I'm always pausing and asking questions, how can I do better? And if you just constantly see patients, you cannot pause and ask that question. So for me, action versus introspection. In our case, introspection is, you could say research because research is introspection to me. You know, asking questions about what you're doing, whether it's right or not, and how how can I, just like, how can I be a better person? So for me, there has to be a balance between actually seeing patients, doing surgery, administration, research, teaching, and doing yoga and during your breaks, whatever, if you're doing it at work, you have to find the right balance for yourself. You might be a warrior that you know you you see patients seven days a week. I admire you, but I don't have that skill. I personally, my approach is I focus on 
one patient at a time. And I put a lot of energy and time in one case. And I probably can do, I don't know, a certain number of cases like that in a given time. And then I turn my energy to more academic questions who would, which would, if answered correctly, benefit those patients or the patients in the next generation. So I have to balance the work like that. And then, and then leave time for things that make you relax outside the work. And that's going to be different for everybody. But to me, family is important. Hobbies are very important. Exercise, you know, if I don't exercise properly, I could be staring at my screen for five hours and, and producing nothing. But sometimes you take hour and a half to hit that, you know, hard tennis session. And when you come back in three hours, you do work that you would normally do in three days, in two to three hours. So, I mean, time is a very expandable thing. In reality, we think five hours equals five hours. No, you know, five hours could be 72 hours or it could be three minutes, depending on your mindset, productivity, and energy level. So you have to do things to expand those three hours, again, to buy you times for other things. So let's see how many different metaphors we can use on today's episode. I, I like the index fund. Let's stick with that because <laughs> you have your total resource allocation in your portfolio. In this case, portfolio is right. your total amount of time. And you have a number of different index funds within that mm-hmm. portfolio. And then within an, a specific index fund, you have allocations of shares to different right different companies in in one index under or perhaps even in uh, across different fields so let's stick with the work index fund and then we'll and then we'll move on to the rest of the portfolio you talked about saying you know seeing patients every day you would burn out within two weeks so research helps you be introspective at all teaching helps you to improve why do you f- feel that the academic route has been best for you in, in, in serving those different areas? Right. I think you have to think about you know, an artist, right? You know, why did being a you know, impressionist help me? Kind of why, you know, it's just, I think part of it is you have certain tendencies. Let me rephrase that because rather you have your tendencies. Why do you feel that working at Yale was more accommodating to your tendencies than maybe if you had gone and worked for a private practice or a network, or maybe if you'd gone somewhere else in the country, why do you feel that working at an academic division suited your tendencies better? I'm not necessarily advocating for or against any company or any setup or private practice and all that. I think uh, you could have a private setting, but you could affiliate yourself with an academic institute and you could still follow by the same index fund. So for me... Would it be the exact same index fund though? Or would it be like Fidelity's version of what Vanguard did? (laughs) Well, you know, it's pretty much the same thing, but the expense ratio is different. And there might be some fees that I don't know about. <laughs> and can you do it the same way? I, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. The management fees could be different. And so and maybe they're different, you know, they may not be as broad based. But I think the key is to think creatively. I think we see examples of these major private enterprises, uh, you know, turning starting fellowships, doing, you know, academic investments with their private money, et cetera. So within that, somebody who's interested in both can also find home. So it's not necessarily, you know, 
Yale versus some major private practice, but I think in the formula. So in the end, yes, you are right that not every uh, enterprise would be accommodating, right, to somebody who wants to spend uh, time on research. So first of all, you have to find that setting for yourself. But second thing is you may have to create that setting for yourself. And, you know, if you're attracting research funding one way or the other, or uh, you have some, you, you know, you, you have some charity or something that uh, you can attract money in other d- different ways and you can set up your lab even in a major commercial enterprise. And nevertheless, in academics, it's easier, but it used to be easier, let's say, because academic centers are also facing a lot of financial pressures. So I don't think there's one perfect solution in that sense. Why do you uh, say it used to be easier? Well, I think if you listen to people for before us and an NIH funding rate was something like 50%, every other grant submitted would be funded. And the universities received a lot more government funding, state funding. They had more money to throw around for research and free up their faculty. So those resources have been, over time, restricted. So with the managed managed care squeeze uh, as well, so a lot of academic centers, you know, they're pushing their faculty to work, you know, similar hours to sometimes private centers. And I think in our field, that has become a problem. And a lot of academic centers have lost their REI divisions. And because financially, it didn't make sense to a a lot of them. I must credit Yale in one sense that the Yale Department of OBGYN and Reproductive Sciences has always been a a pro- uh, translational research always supported clinicians with scientific interests and always created time as much as possible or supported them so that they can get funding. So there are still departments like that somehow, but not as as many of those. So I'm, you know, lucky to be where I am right now. Well, that changes things for the people that go into work for those places, don't they? If what they wanted out of NREI division was to spend perhaps less clinical op hours, more research hours, if they are starting to see more of the push that, well, we need you at this clinical capacity, no matter what, do they lose some of their recruiting edge that they may well, have I used to so. have? I think so. I think academic centers, especially at the more advanced level, you know, Junior colleagues, they still, I think, are attracted to academic centers because they need to pass their boards, maybe build a little bit of name for themselves. But I think there's a difficulty in recruiting more senior people and then losing uh, junior people when eventually they have acquired you know, certain credentials and skills. So yes, I think there's a uh, brain drain in academia, especially in our specialty. You know, there are still mechanisms of uh, supporting these, like your productive scientist development program, Warher, like Yale has this. So we have a number of faculty who are on these tracks with protected time. And then we see that there's some, you know, rising stars because of that. You had one of our colleagues on your show and there is still opportunities. But, you know, if you compare academia in terms of salaries to uh, a private practice, you know, we are all aware of the, the differences. But, you know, I think medicine or especially our subspecialty is not something that you want to pursue because you're only interested in the financial aspects. I think 
in that case, risk benefit ratio is not that great. You really have to love that the path you have chosen. So as I said, somebody who's who likes to do a lot of introspection through research will not be happy in the continuous flow of academic clinical practice. What advice would you give? Because a lot of the people that listen to this show are fellows and some of them might even want to come work for you. So the advice you give could be used against you. You got to remember that. But, <laughs> but people are listening across the country and in other places too, for that matter. And so what, what advice would you give them to investigate if the program they're interested in potentially working for really does meet what they want in terms of research, in terms of protected faculty time, or if it's just kind of a smokescreen for lack of a better word, though I certainly don't mean to say it's so sinister for you're just going to be a workhorse clinician like you would anywhere else. What what advice would you give fellows for sniffing that out as they determine what program they want to work for? So going back to financial analogy, I would say invest early. You know, start putting in your 401k whatever early, right? I think that should start when you're resident, because if you are number one, you think you are interested in research. I usually don't like to use term research; it's become cliche, whatever it means. I mean, so that's why I use introspection analogy. But you're more introspective, inquisitive. You want to approach more creative side of uh, <clears throat> what we do. I mean, clinical creation is also important. I think you have to start as a resident, maybe even a medical student, building that those research skills. And so that, you know, when you hit fellowship, you are maybe a few steps ahead and you can do things in, in during fellowship that could prepare you to be more competitive for an academic job, which would enable you to, you know, get funding early. And once you secure some funding, then you have more support from these institutions to have more time. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, like you start with no to write, to propose, to think, eventually you're not going to produce anything. So you have to preempt, I would say, you know, this, decide on your career path, um, not first year of fellowship, but, oh boy, maybe even medical school or first year of residency and build those skills and portfolio if you're interested in clinical research, start working with somebody to build, have publications and understand the skills. If you're interested in basic research, same thing and hit the ground running. And uh, so that's number one. Number two is, you know, there may not be a lot of academic jobs that you can negotiate necessarily, but if the other alternative is working for an academic center and like working for a private practice, but a re reduced salary, you may say, if they give me this, I'll work for academics. If they don't, then I'll just stick with private practice. I think they need to have a good negotiation and maybe allow them themselves three years of maybe protected research time, in which time they can apply for various mechanisms for junior faculties. As I said, there's a productive scientist developer program. There's the Warhor from NIH, and there could be other mechanisms. Once that they get that on board, then they can build on that and start getting you know, bigger grants, et cetera, if that's what they're interested in. So that would be my general guidance. 
So that negotiation happens for the employment agreement. This is the amount of protected time. You have this when you're negotiating the employment agreement? Right. I mean, you know, some institutions are like very rigid, right? You say, okay, you're coming as an assistant professor. Unless you get a grant, we'll give you, uh, you know, 0.5 FTE for you to do whatever you want with that time. Some institutions are more rigid. Some institutions may be looking for they're missing that we've been talking about portfolios, et cetera. Maybe now let's go, you know, more towards sport. I mean, building a department is like building a national soccer team. You know, like you have to put uh, people with different skills and different positions to, uh, to lead. And maybe they have a lot of strong clinicians, but they need somebody who's uh, promising, who's going to move the field. So if you can show them with the portfolio, like you've done in your residency, you published three key papers, it shows that you are a promising person. Okay, going back to the investment. So this is a low risk investment for us. Looks like, look what he, she has done during residency. Imagine if you give her time during as an attending faculty, what she could do. I mean, it's going to depend on the job, but if you have already built some portfolio, it will be easier for you to negotiate. Okay. So let's move on to a couple of the other index funds in <laughs> our portfolio. We've talked about what the, the, the actual work life, the allocation of work. Let's talk about the rest of the allocation of life. You could Family is its own index fund. Hobbies would be its own right. index fund. Health and fitness would probably be its own index fund. And so of those other three things, which... Which do you find sharpens the saw most for you? And, and by that, I mean, gets you back. You mentioned if you play a round of tennis that you can be exceptionally productive afterwards. So which do you find re-energizes you the most I, quickly? I don't think anyone matters individually because in the end, it's the total amount of assets you retire with, right? So uh, I don't care which one built that fund. I think, it, again, it's balanced and it also depends on the day, right? But, you know, I can have the same pleasure as going, picking up my daughter from school, uh, let's say during the lunchtime and bring her home and chatting, whatever, as, uh, you know, playing a tennis match and kicking the rear end of uh, a, a, you know, long-time rival in tennis or something like that. I think it also depends on your chemistry that day too, right? So, so I don't think that there's a formula for one person, but whatever keeps you balanced to me, but I try to keep these things going. I, I agree with you that exercise, uh, regular exercise is important. I also personally do yoga regularly. I've discovered this maybe three, four years ago, and it's a really it balances you. And sometimes, some days you have 10 minutes, you do 10 minutes. Some days you have more, you do more. So not only exercising your body at the same time, you're exercising uh, your mind in a different way than when you're reading or uh, doing experiments uh, or seeing patients uh, trying to solve a clinical dilemma. I think your mind, your brain also needs stretching. So if you only stretch it in one direction, it's deformed. So, you know, like seeing patients, it stretch, stretches this way, doing research stretches this way. But if I do yoga this way, you know, exercise this way, family that way. So you're going to have more space. So for me, you know, it, depending on how things are, one may do better one day and one may do better the other day. 
didn't think that I would do an engaged MD sponsorship read for an episode on work-life balance. And then I got to the end of the episode and I'm like, no, this is the meat and potatoes of what you want from someone like engaged MD. When my guest and I are talking about the junk bonds of work that go into the work-life allocation, the junk bonds are those things that are monotonous tasks that should be done at scale, should be done with software, should be done ahead of time, should be done at the convenience of the user, but aren't. Things like repeating the same information to patients to teach them things that are coming in their protocol, the same legal forms, except you're tracking down one for this patient and your staff is basically law clerks because they're tracking it down for another patient. All of these things that should be done at scale, that should be organized in a platform, and that's engaged MD. That way you're spending your time with the most valuable minutes possible, tailoring the experience to the patient's need. They know what you're talking about because they're well-educated and you're not acting like a darn paralegal. Go to engagedmd.com slash IRH, but only if you want 25% off the implementation fee. If you do, if you go to engagedmd.com slash IRH and you select, you heard them on the show or you heard them from me, you'll get a few bucks off of your implementation fee. And it helps us to create more content and give you more resources like this. But you'll also be getting time back to make life better for you, for your staff, for your patients, because that allocation is not infinite. The junk bonds have to go. And the meaningful work and the meaningful things that we get out of life have to stay. Go to engagedmd.com slash IRH and get some of your time back. Well, you said at the end of the day, it's the fund that, that helped get you rich yeah. was the most important. And in this context, we're, we're talking about rich in life as opposed to material wealth. Right. But that can yeah. be a part of it. And I, I think that the question people need to get to this allocation answer is what does it look like at the end of your life and what what do you think you'll regret and right i i do believe that there are people like jeff bezos and like elon musk that i i don't think they're going to regret not spending time with their loved ones that much i really believe that those are people that will regret if they haven't gotten to the mm -hmm. absolute limit of their pursuit so i do think that is possible for most of us, though, I don't think we're going to look back and say, I wish I worked one more day. I wish that I had taken that meeting. I wish that I had done that. For, for most of us, I believe that we're going to re either regret not having pursued something else that was meaningful or spending more time with our loved ones. But what we will regret if we just sit on the couch and do nothing and we right. don't and, and we don't become better at our craft. Right. And so... Now you have more things competing for time, potentially. What I think has to go is the things that don't lead to any one of those things that have been decided as meaningful, meaning Candy Crush, video games, and, and not to say that all of those things can never be meaningful, but I, I, I'm talking about the things that don't fulfill our, right. our biggest interest in the form of hobbies that don't make us closer to our family, that don't make us better at our craft, you know, the YouTube videos that I think right. those things are the things that have to go. And if you want to have a balanced life, you really have to 
you have to protect even more, don't you, in, in terms of your time allocation? Absolutely. You got to get rid of the junk bonds, you know, so uh, penny stocks, whatever. Exactly. I mean, the, I, I'm not saying I, I have an ideal situation here. Yeah. As you said, you know, watching TV, you know, you have fantastic movies that uh, you can watch and great sports events you can watch. But if, you, if you're consuming uh, TV three, four hours a day, the social medias, Instagrams and things like that, you know, you're already, you know, where, where is that time coming from? You know, one of those other components, right? As you said, if you think that you fulfilled everything else and you still have free time, congratulations to you. And you must be in a different dimension, but go ahead and invest <laughs> your time in other things. Perhaps one of the you know, things that I do is, yeah, I rarely watch TV, for example. I'm never on social media. I'm very selective. Uh, for example, I to mainly use LinkedIn, but that's selective. Maybe I will post once a month. Maybe we'll, our, you know, our operation will do an Instagram post once a month. As you said, that the social media could be uh, poisonous in that sense. You know, obviously, if you have a professional operation, I think this is more for private practices they do all that stuff for you that can spare you uh, in terms of business marketing well a lot of people think that i am just ubiquitously pro social media and i approach life as a consumer and, and a business owner not mm -hmm. always through the same exact lens it's mm -hmm. important to look through both lenses but sometimes right. they are different as a business owner i can't get romantic about where my client's attention is, my prospective client's attention, or in the case of providers where their patient's attention is, I have to go where that attention is. And I have to speak to people where they are. But as a consumer, I don't need to be watching what my friends are having for breakfast or, right. or some political debate between two right. people that have no business commenting on policy one way or the other. And I think that has to do with the junk bonds that, right. that you were referencing. And it's not for me to say this, this is exactly a junk bond, although I think generally I could speak to it and, and generally be right, but it's going to be different for, for people's allocation. But people do need to get rid of that first because there's yeah. never going to be enough time for all of the other. Right. I mean, uh, social media, you're right. There's a business function of it, as I said, you know, you can use that, but otherwise it's designed to be addictive. I mean, it's a drug. So you just, the more you take it, the more you'll be addicted and um, it's a vortex. You'll be sucked in there. So, you know, I, I was always scared of that. Did you so, think in these terms when you were building your career, Kutluk, did you think as you, you took your first real job or did you think, well, this is how I want to build my life? Or did you start thinking about terms like work-life balance after, after your kids started growing up, after millennials started talking about it uh, all over the place? Did, is this something that a focus that came to you later on, or did you set out to build your career in a certain way? No, I think a cliche, right? That's what they say. Life is what happens to you when you're busy planning it. So obviously no, but uh... I mean, my goal was always to have fun. And if something is not giving me fun, I'm not saying, you know, fun meaning, you know, I'm going to be playing cards all day or something, but you know, the, the, it has to be fun, right? So when I followed my own principle, it just naturally happens. I try to uh, do my allocation based on that. 
but of course, you know, the, the more you live and see, the, the more wrong steps, missteps you take, you realize that, oh, you know, I shouldn't have gone that way. So next time you're a better trained uh, mouse, you don't get into that uh, trap. Yeah, I don't think that uh, you can do that allocation at birth. Well, maybe that's what we're starting to see more of, not at birth, but starting to see it younger and younger. And I wonder if that's the difference when we talk about millennials wanting work-life balance. One of the responses has been, well, all the generations have wanted work-life balance. It would have been great to have. And surely millennials are not exceptional as humans in the sense that they are the only ones that want balance between their work and their hobbies and their health and their fitness. I think they're exceptionals. I admire millennials, you know, like they're the the, uh, homo deus. What's exceptional about them? They've got all the skills, you know, like we didn't grow up with a giant life PubMed, you know, the internet, right? We came into the late. So they have this huge life PubMed on internet. They can, they can get their answers to everything. I mean, one question is now, how necessary is the classical schooling system? And, you know, you can get all the information. Of course, the skill we need to teach them is to objectively analyze what they see on the internet to scrutinize it but my 15 year old has more wisdom than i had when i was at 35 because of all giant global library that they they have at their disposal so they figure it out what i figured out at 35 they figure out at 15 of course they don't you know like why am i going to be a doctor i want something that offers me more balance. I'm going to plan something so I can work from home or, you know, I'm going to do a startup. I don't want to work for anybody else. So I think that's what I'm saying that they have that kind of long view. They don't have the classic understanding of going to working for somebody, etc. Of course, that's going to create some kind of anxiety in that generation because, you know, there's so much competition for that independent space. So it's an interesting experiment and I'm waiting to see how it's going to end, you know, like (laughs) another 15, 20 years, we'll figure it out. So I think that's what makes them exceptional. It's not the desire to, because you yourself have talked about the desire, but it is exceptional that they are coming into the workforce with a picture in mind of what work-life balance looks like. And they are willing to prioritize it in terms of walking away from offers or quitting jobs or, or who they go to work for. And your point is interesting about how the accelerated learning from the digital age has been a part of the accelerated expectations, right? You hit on the accelerated learning, what you knew at 35, your 15 year old knows. I think that's off also true for expectations of, oh, if this is what a 35-year-old drives and what a 35-year-old makes in salary, and this is what I want coming out of college too. You know, I don't know if it's some kind of enumeration issue, but definitely they have, I think, a more global view on things and the priorities. And so, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they don't think that you need to sacrifice your life because life is the most, you know, most valuable commodity to, you know, have a luxury car, right? And I think they're so globally connected. They experience the world globally and, you know, they have other ways of enjoying life rather than traveling on a private jet. So, you know, it's not a hippie generation, right? But I look at it as, you know, di- differently less 
militaristic generation. I don't know how I put it, but they're less regimented to me and more broad-minded. And they don't want to be you know, put into cubicles to achieve what they want to achieve. And I don't think there's any amount of money that can force them into uh, a lifestyle that uh, um, they detest. So they think they have options, let's say. Well, I, I think one wrench in the works is the having junk bonds in the portfolio. I, I they, they want right. the yield of the portfolio. And that is it is possible to get a high yield yeah. from a portfolio. But I think that there's a lot of junk bonds in there. And that's right. one of the concerns that I have when I hear the word self-care. And I hear it's I, I am more than open to the idea of self-care. It is necessary for being productive if it's something that that actually helps rejuvenate you, that if it actually helps you pursue a larger goal. But if it's just increasing media consumption or if it's just an excuse to defer from an obligation, then I, I, I don't see how we get to a place where we, we have 30-hour productive work weeks if they are marbled with escapism. Right, escapism. It's the right word. I mean, that's why it's a drug, right? Alcohol, drugs, social media. You're constantly escaping from what you have to do or what you should really be thinking. That's kind of the quicksand for the next generation. So that's going to engulf some, some talent and bog them down, but others will learn how to dance around it and hopefully do great things. And uh, I think also being aware of what we are doing to environment is also very important. A lot of young generations uh, are uh, aware of that. And uh, uh, a lot of them are more worried about that than, you know, filling up their coffers because, you know, what good it does if you don't have a good, healthy planet to live with, what are you going to do with all that money? So uh, I think that's the other reason I think this generation will have a long view because they need to think about the entire planet with what they do. Well, they do have a lot more to think about in terms of, you know, having to have a response for other things that are, mm-hmm. that are happening. And so let's pretend that we, we have solved for the junk bond issue for the moment that we've gotten all the junk bonds out of our allocation. Right. We are left with high yield, low cost index funds that, <laughs> per, that lead us to a good outcome at the, at the end of all this. But then there is this pestering concept that I hear from and about physicians, Kuluk, and I don't know that it's erroneous. It, it could very well be valid, but the, but the idea is that, well, physicians can never really be off. They, they can never be totally unplugged because but what if our patients need something from us? Well, I have to take a break now, so I'll see you in five minutes. Just kidding. Right. I, I get your point. Physicians can be off on the paper, but they can never be off here because, I mean, if, at least personally, but I know a lot of other people, you know, and if, even if I go away, I think about my patients. What happened to this? What happened to that? What happened to that? That's the nature of it. That's why don't, don't pick this field if you really not, you know, you don't like to have that kind of lifestyle, right? But not necessarily your own call every movement of the day, but uh, when we are caring for people's future it's hard to you know completely detach yourself from that but if you're working in a good team situation and you have colleagues that you can 
trust. Maybe you can disconnect nicely when you're off, when you're doing your yoga, when you're like a week away with you know doing the things you like. But if you're a one-man show, yeah, that's very hard. Maybe one of the advantages of being in academics or a larger practice is that you can have other people take the burden off of you sometimes. Uh, can you do that if you're taking a two-week vacation with your family and you just want to be alone right. with your family in a cabin in Europe? Can you say, I'm not taking any calls. I trust my partners to be able to yeah. handle the case. Can a physician do that? I can imagine a physician can do that. So I'm, I can imagine that it happens in other practices. So I could say that in academics and other places I've been to uh, several places and I've seen that happen. I don't necessarily see anything wrong. That's an individual personality issue, I think. And you can also set limits. I mean, I don't need to know these, but if something like this happened, yes, you can contact me. You know, we have patients that we make very personal, personal relationships in terms of patient-doctor relationships. And uh, sometimes they just want to hear from you. And so, yeah, there will be situations where you could be on vacation, but there's some emergency, you'll have to answer that. But the key to that is to be able to switch on and switch off. You make your phone call, you know, give instructions, and then you're back to as if it's never happened. So it's a matter of uh, being- well, What about the doctors that say, yeah, I, I trust my partners, they're perfectly qualified, but my patients expect me and they have to be able to reach me and I can never have right. a window where I'm unreachable. Right. If you're complaining about that, that means uh, you need to change it. So you cannot say that I don't trust my colleagues. I need to be reachable, but I'm never off. So that's like trying to have the cake and eat it, right? <laughs> Going back to that. But when it comes to patient care and you're trying to be personal with your patient, provide personal, there's no formula for that other than cloning yourself. So either you trust your team or be available. So I don't know uh, if there's a formula for that. So uh, for me, I set sort of criteria. Okay, you know, XYZ happens, perfect. You can go ahead and manage it, but it hits, I don't know, Omicron, then you have to call me. And uh, you know, that way, if you get a call, you know that it was absolutely necessary. Or, you know, you cloned yourself, there's exactly a person like you, and uh, fine, great. Go away to Mars on a mission or whatever. Nobody can reach you. <laughs> I have somewhat of a formula. It, it doesn't totally address the yeah. limits that you would set in terms of, mm -hmm. of what you can use, of what people can contact you for or not. But it does give a formula for how much time one might want to protect. Have you ever heard of the book Profit First? Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. We'll link to it in the, the show notes. The author's last name, I can't pronounce even if oh, I remembered it, but it's the concept is a bit contrary to GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, where right. revenue minus operating expenses equals right. profit. And profit first, it simply is revenue minus profit equals operating expenses. So you're always allocating for profit, even from the infancy of a business. And if you're an infant business, you, you have almost nothing to allocate anyway. So, but you start with a current allocation percentage and then you have a target allocation percentage. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning, you might be saving a dollar, but the point is that you reserve profit from the very beginning and learn to manage operations 
operating expenses accordingly, as opposed to the reverse. And when I think of the needs that we have to have loving relationships with our families, to have Mm -hmm. mental health and clarity breaks, there has to be some time. And I'm not going to tell people how much time it is, but when I'm with my loved ones, that there's nothing that's going to interrupt that unless it is a grave emergency. And so I'm going to write this book someday, Kutluk, called Time First, where you start off with a current allocation percentage. And maybe it's just, you know what, every Sunday evening, I'm going to, I'm tucking my daughter in and I'm going to read her a book and nothing will threaten that. And then a year from now, I want to be able to do this. And five years from now, I want to be able to take three weeks in Europe. I, I believe that that has to happen. People have to have some allocation of percentage of uninterruptible time. And then based on how that goes and how much they want, then they can have a different target to augment for the future. Right. I mean, you know, vacation break, whatever is break. But I also think about you may have that time, but there is a situation if you didn't respond, that would create the consequences that cost you more time in the future, which would come out of your family time. So even when you're on your off time, you have to be able to recognize the situation. If you didn't respond at that time, that will cost you a lot more time in the future. So you can think about scenarios of, you know, the complication happens and you don't give the right uh, instructions or whatever that, you know, ramifications may take more time. So it's a bit tricky. We say that, but, uh, you know, as a physician, as I said, you need to be able to uh, have some kind of artificial intelligence in your system that will weed that out, do that calculation for you before you're interrupted. It doesn't happen a lot if you, you know, have a good team. So that comes to building good teams. You good leaders are the ones who develop other leaders. Your leadership is measured by the index of how many leaders you can develop or how many people who would lead others. But When you're building your team, you need to build people who can also independently think and function with you. Again, if you don't have a good team, it's hard to have time off. Well, in order to have an independent team, though, you also have to take some time off because how do you know if they're really independent or not? If you're constantly there, they will ask you and you will stick your finger in the pudding jar if, if that temptation is offered. I took two weeks last year in 2021 and my team didn't make every decision that I would have agreed with, but it, it revealed to me, Oh, there's, there's one to three things here that are clearly missing from our core processes that I need to fix. And I I only knew that because I went away and they made a different decision that I wouldn't have made. And because of that, it's like, okay, well, I was gone for two weeks. The the farm isn't going to burn down. The practice isn't going to burn down during a, a two week period, but then I can make the, it could, I guess <laughs> it, it could. Well, that's a good, that is a good point though, because I, could, <laughs> I couldn't have done that six years ago. So that is a right. good point, but you, that's why you start with a day and then maybe it's a couple mm-hmm. of days and then it's two weeks. And eventually I'd like to be able to go for right. big blocks at a time. So we've talked a lot about the, the, different balances of work, not just what goes into work, but also the things that accompany it, like health and fitness, family and hobby. We're going to conclude this show and a lot of private practice owners listen, but there are a lot of division chiefs that listen to this show. 
And one of our biggest segments is fellows and right. it's younger associates that are thinking about what the next move, next move is. So how would you want to conclude with them, Dr. Okta? Well, fellows are the biggest, you know, very important part of the team, whether they're clinical fellows, research fellows, you know, observers, whatnot. And in my career, I've always worked with fellows of, again, either clinical fellows or fellows from various parts of the world, and their contributions are tremendous. So they're an important part of the team. And that's, you know, by working with a mentor prepares them well for the future. So my advice to them, again, I said, you're a fellow now, but if you're planning to be a fellow, you're going to start early bit, but also find yourself a good mentor and which could help you with whatever you want to accomplish uh, in your career and uh, work with them. And you said that you are active on LinkedIn. So that may have been a, a little subliminal nod. If, if somebody, can people reach out to you on LinkedIn if they're interested? Oh yeah, in, in absolutely. Media? All the time. So, you know, I decided to focus on one social media gadget. And uh, I think LinkedIn works well because it's nicely filtered and more focused on professional topics. And I think it's pretty efficient. You know, I have through LinkedIn made formed many alliances, solved many issues, reached out to executives of insurance companies when we had problems with uh, patients' reimbursements, things like that. So I think LinkedIn is a, <clears throat> a really good way to uh, expand your network. Well, before I let you go, I know that everybody listening to the audio and not watching the video is picturing you as a millennial with your artisan coffee and your beanie and a flannel, but Dr. Oktai is in a suit and tie today. And it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Dr. Kutluk Oktai for coming to. Thank you. Thank you. Next time I'll put that digital outfit on. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) You've been listening to Inside Reproductive Health, sponsored by Engaged MD. For technology to streamline patient education and informed consent, visit engagedmd.com slash IRH for 25% off your implementation fee. That's engagedmd.com slash IRH.